Hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, this is a first for our show. I'm, I'm so thankful to have both Frank Thomas and Carl Erskine on the podcast today, giving us the, the hitter versus pitcher elements of, of the research. And, and Frank, I'm going to go right to you to get things started for us. Okay, Sam. Well, to be honest with you, the story I have to tell, Carl knows it pretty well, that uh, one time we were in Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, and and Carl was the pitcher, and he threw me 17 curveballs and change-ups that I fouled off, and I guess he felt that I, I he had me set up for a fastball, and he threw a fastball and hit it out of the ballpark. And I remember he came into the clubhouse after the game, and he said to me, he says, don't you ever look for anything but a fastball? I said, no. I said, I can always adjust to any other pitch, but if I'm looking for a curveball and he throws a fastball, I'm in the hospital. So I look for the fastball on every pitch so to protect myself in that respect. And, Carl, I, I, would, do you have the memory of this uh, specific moment? Oh, I absolutely. And as soon as I knew Frank was on the show, that's the first thing that came to my mind because uh, he thought that I'd broken some kind of rule because I threw him, I think, 17 straight curveballs. <laughs> listen, Frank could hit a fastball in the middle of the night with his eyes shut. So why throw him a fastball? Even wasted one, no. I decided that day I was never going to throw him a fastball. <laughs> so that was unusual for me. The only pitcher I ever saw do something like that was Whitey Ford in spring training when he was a young pitcher. Stingle forced him to throw nothing in his uh, exhibition game but curveballs. He pitched three innings, and he, made, he threw nothing but curveballs. He made him, made him throw them over and over and over again. But... That was a unique time for me, but it, it was not uh, for fun. Frank was a uh, Frank was a good, had quick hands, he had really quick hands, and uh, he got the bat speed up quick. Now I never analyzed that to how many seconds or how what kind of speed, but from a pitcher standpoint, uh, Eddie Matthews had the quickest hands, but Frank had quick hands. Frank, what do you what do you think of the uh, the compliment? Oh, I, I appreciate that very much. I mean, you know, you just uh, I was very fortunate. The good Lord gave me what I have, and I put it to good use. But you know, when I first went into baseball, Sam, uh, I couldn't hit a, I, every ball that I hit would be right field, right center, and dead center. And then when I went to Charleston, South Carolina, and Rip Sewell was a pitcher, uh, he was a, a manager. And he'd come up to me and he says, you know, you're big and strong. He says, why don't you move closer to the plate? He says, because you can pull a ball. Well, when I did that, I became a pull hitter. I didn't hit any balls to right field or right center or dead center. You know, some to, to center, but most of the balls that I hit were pulled to the left side of the diamond. And, you know, if they would have pulled the shift on me like they did today, uh, I don't know whether I would have been – uh, hitting the way I the way I hit, 
but baseball was played a little different back when we played. And, and you know, I, it was interesting. Um, you did mention how you would have just put it down the third base line if they're always uh, uh, shifting you to pull. Carl, you know, do you remember any sort of – obviously there were alignments, uh, of course. You know, people – the manager was constantly moving the field around, but what do you remember about – any type of shift in your days? Well, nothing extreme. I don't remember any hitter, even though Frank was a pull hitter. Uh, and most right-handed hitters hit the ball to from center on around to left field. Hardly ever saw an opposite field home run. It was not rare, but it was unusual in my day to have a hitter, any hitter, hit a home run to the opposite field. Johnny Mize was uh, good. He was, he, I think he was as good as uh, as Ted Williams. Uh, but he hit, he could hit a ball in the upper deck any place. But that was rare. And when they lowered the strike zone, now you see home runs any place. A lot of them to the opposite field. But in my day in pitching, you hardly ever saw a, a left-hand hitter hit a ball. In the in the stands in left field, opposite field, uh, but that's changed. And part of the change is the lower strike zone. Right. Yeah. That that does make sense. Um, and, and Frank, you know, when when in terms of hitting in uh, Ebbets Field, do you remember anything to uh, uh, to the opposite field, do you remember hitting anything over to those left field stands? No, no, I don't remember hitting any. The only time that I hit a home run the right field was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, when I was in New Orleans, and Danny Murtaugh was my was my manager. He put the hit and run on, <laughs> and I hit a, I hit a, the ball to right field and out of the ballpark. Hmm. That's the only time I ever uh, remember hitting a ball to right field for a home run. But I I loved hitting in Ebbets Field. I was hoping that I would be traded to Evans Field to uh, the Dodgers because, you know, with the lineup that they had, and if I would have been put into that lineup along with them, we, we would have had an, an atrocious uh, lineup. But as it is, they had a good lineup as it was. I remember uh, Bobby Cox. He took a lot of base hits away from me right down the line, and so was Kenny Boyer. And also the, the guy from uh, from the Phillies. And I played on the line, and I used to say, why don't you move over? Move over so I don't get the ball by you. And he just stayed on the line, and he took many hits away from me. Now, let me tell you something about the uh, Pittsburgh lineup. You guys had, I don't know what your average runs per game were, but it had to be up there because Robustelli, you, Kiner, uh, was Westlake in that lineup? Well, see, I wasn't there when Rastelli was there. Oh, you weren't? Well, no. Rastelli had 11 home runs the first month he was there, and you never heard of him after that. Uh, yeah. Well, I remember him because he was in a lineup with guys uh, right. five in a row. Any one of them could hit the ball over the over uh, the West, West, Westlake was there. Gus Bell was there. Yeah. Okay. They, they, had a pretty, they had a pretty good lineup back then, but uh, from from fifty one, well, Kiner was there in fifty one when he got traded to Saint to uh, Cleveland. That's when I got my chance to play regular, 
That's when Fred Haney put his arm around me after talking to Ricky. He says, we take this kid to spring training every year. He has 10 or 11 home runs in spring training. We bring him north. We don't play him. He said, I want this kid to play. He put his arm around me. He said, you're my center fielder. He said, you're going to show me whether you can do it or whether you can't. Well, it was like taking a blanket off me and sending me out to pasture. Uh, if I didn't do the job, I had nobody to blame but myself. But as it turned out, you know, I had 30 home runs my first full year, which was 53, which is still a record with Pittsburgh as a first-year man. That's hard to believe. A record from 1953. That is amazing. And uh, it, it, I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but uh, looking at 1951 first, uh, you faced Carl once, and you got a hit. <laughs> I'm not sure. Do you remember the first time you faced Carl? That's, yeah, yeah, that's just one of the very few hits that I got in 51. Because I, I was kind of mad that the Pirates didn't bring me up after the season was over earlier, you know, from New Orleans, because I had I was playing down there. And uh, I instead of coming up soon, I just waited a week before I left New Orleans and, and then I drove up and I didn't care whether I went to the ballpark or not because I was really mad. And I guess uh, I could feel sorry about that now because if I had those extra two weeks, I'd have got a little more pay in my pension. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> well, maybe we all need to call up uh, Rob Manfred right now, but I guess he's got uh, uh, plenty of things going on for him right now. Uh, <laughs> Carl, do you remember the first time you faced Frank? I don't no, I don't really remember that. Um, you know, I, what I remember about the Pirates, uh, I don't know if their pitching staff was not real strong in the in the middle fifties, but they would score runs and they were tough to shut out. Somebody on that club would always get a, a home run or two, and Kiner was my nemesis uh, in my twelve seasons. Now he, I faced him at Pittsburgh several times, but he was traded. You said to Cleveland. I remember yeah. pitching against him with the Cubs. He, he must have been traded back into the National League because uh, I remember pitching against him uh, when he was with the Cubs at, toward the end of his career. But one thing about Kiner that I don't think other pitchers probably knew or didn't use a lot, he was a good curveball hitter. Uh, good fastball hitter too in the strike zone but uh, I, I threw him some really good curveballs that were going down and away and he pulled them in the left center yeah, he so, stood close he stood close to the plate he did yes he did but you, you wouldn't expect him necessarily uh, to be a better curveball hitter I don't know if he was better than a fastball but you couldn't make a mistake with him with a curveball. You had to have it really away from him. But uh, I think I think you said uh, ten. He had ten home runs off of me. I think um, you mentioned yeah, that let's, earlier. Well, so yeah, we were talking about that off air, and just to uh, get our oh, audience okay. privy to it, it's summary of 199 home runs allowed is, is what I I see on the uh, the uh, Carlson. Yeah baseball okay. reference page and um yeah so you missed 200 this is of course between both uh brooklyn and los angeles right. and ralph ralph hit 10 off of you uh frank thomas hit six uh some other notables willie mays hit eight stan Musial hit eight 
Hank Aaron hit five, Eddie Matthews hit four, Wally Moon hit four, Bobby Thompson hit four, and um, and then there's a whole sling of, of players' names going all the way down to one there. And interesting, <laughs> here's a random name to see if you remember, Carl. Uh, uh, Daryl Spencer got one home run off of you. Do you remember anything about him? Shortstop for the Giants. Yeah, I remember him. I didn't remember what I did against him, but uh, uh, I'm, well, I'm, Carl, trying to think, you... I'm trying to think of a name. It'll come to me in a minute. His first, his first time up in the big leagues, and he had a home run off of me, and he was sent out the next day. <laughs> he only had one or two games in the big leagues, but he got me at least for one. Carl, I, I, you... I probably have to – sorry, go ahead, Frank. Carl, what year did you retire? 59. Okay, so uh, I don't uh, – I guess I hit the six home runs f- from you. Uh, I know I hit four from 53 to 56, and then from 57 and 58 and 59, that's when I hit the other two. I don't remember what the dates of those were. I got yeah. a. Uh, I got I'd a, have to. Re- yeah. I got a letter, uh, fan letter one time, a big letter, and it had a, uh, it had a big folded page in it, and it had every home run that Aaron hit. It had the date, the inning, how many were on, and the pitcher that threw it, <laughs> and and he was sending this to every pitcher who had threw, thrown a home run to, to Aaron. So he said, Carl, would you please sign on? And he named five different dates and places. He said, would you please, uh, the 20th, the 31st, the 72nd, he went right down the line. I wonder if that guy ever completed that. Uh, it was an attorney from someplace. But uh, he had all of Aaron's home runs when he broke Cruz's record. And the picture- you know, Monty Irwin got me a list, got a guy in in, uh, uh, in the front office in, in, in New York. He got me a, a guy to do the whole thing from my 51 year all the way up to when I retired. And, it, and he gave the date from the, whether it was the first inning all the way to the 14th inning of all the games that I played in. And it gave, you know, what inning it was hit, how many men were on base, and then at the end he gave how many home runs I hit against the left-handers, uh, the most I hit against any left-hander, and the most I hit against any right-hander. Now, Harvey Haddix, I hit uh, a lot of home runs off of him, but to me he was the toughest pitcher for me to really figure out because what he did, if he, if he threw a fastball to you and you hit it for a home run, you would see the fastball, but you wouldn't see it for a strike. And if you hit a curveball off of him, you wouldn't see the curveball for a while until you hit another one, okay? But he wouldn't throw for a strike. So it, it was pretty tough to get him. But I still look for a fastball off him any time in, in that respect. But uh, I had the most home runs off the left-hander against him and the most against Newcomb. I had nine against Newcomb. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned uh, you mentioned Stan Musial. Uh, I had a good record against the Cardinals, but uh, Musial still hit his three thirty or whatever his lifetime was. Uh, but he, Musial was a tough out because 
he was a contact hitter. You could hardly ever get the third strike past Musial. Uh, when he passed away, uh, somebody wrote me and or called me, and he said, "Do you know how many times you faced Musial?" And I said, "No, in 12 seasons, I don't. I don't know. I know I pitched 300 innings plus against the Cardinals. You may you faced Musial 164 times. That's the most of any hitter that you faced in 12 seasons." And I said, "Well, I." I don't remember facing him that many times, but I did face the Cardinals uh, over 300 innings. But Musial was a contact hitter, and he was a true hitter to what they teach hitters. you got to make contact. Hit the ball where it's pitched. If it's outside, you don't try to pull it. If it's inside, you do pull it. And it, he was he was a master at that. Wherever the ball was pitched, that's where he hit it. So he hit all fields. And and he had good power when he got his pitch, but 164 times is how many times I faced Musial. <laughs> wow! Well, I have a distinction call, I, I, and I'm very proud of it. You know, I never struck out 100 times in the season, whether it was in the minor leagues or whether it was in the major league. And the reason why I never did that is because my first manager, Jack Rothrock, pulled me aside in Tallahassee, Florida, my first year in, in pro ball in 1949. And he says, you can't get to the major leagues walking. Swing the bat. And he says, the reason why I tell you to swing the bat is because something can always happen. The ball could take a bad hop. The fielder could throw the ball wild. He said, but if you stand there and take the third strike like they do today, he says, you just turn around and go walk back to the bench. And I never forgot that. And that was my theory every time I went to the plate. Put the ball in play. If there was a man on third base, my theory was, give me a pitch, let me hit the fly ball and drive in the run. So that was my theory of hitting in that respect. Uh, And then because they played me back in left field, because I was a pool hitter and and hit the ball pretty good down third, they played me back way in the grass. I, I beat out 21 out of 23 bunts. But they don't do that today because nobody knows how to bump today. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, swinging for the fences. I uh, the the best and most uh, sensible answer to a question of, from a hitter. I did a little interviewing after my playing days, and I interviewed Aaron one day, and I said, you know, I pitched against you for five or six seasons, but what what's your theory on hitting? I've heard. Uh, I've heard uh, Williams talk about the the level of the bat and so forth. What's your theory on hitting? And here's what Henry Aaron said. My theory on hitting, Carl, is attack the ball before it attacks you. That's very good. That's very good. You can't can't help a kid in a little league any better than to tell him that. You attack the ball before it attacks you because little leaguers all think the ball's going to attack them. And uh, that's the greatest line on hitting from a good hitter that I ever heard. So. Well, T- Tito Francona had uh, – somebody asked him that same question that, uh, you, know, that, that you asked uh, Henry Aaron. And Tito says, I hit <laughs> – wherever the ball is, that's where I hit. He says, I just go up there and, and hit the ball with the bat. Just, I didn't care where it was pitched or anything like that. And he was a pretty good hitter. So I'm looking – it's amazing that we can pull these numbers up uh, the way we can. Um, 
And I'm going to go to your page in terms of the, the 149 pitchers. Carl, you are in the top five of, of uh, pitchers that, he's, that uh, uh, he got home runs off of. Uh, you were tied with Joey J, Harvey Haddix, and Warren Spahn uh, with six home runs. And uh, so, Frank, my question for you is, uh, uh, Don, you mentioned Don Newcomb, uh, and yes, uh, that is the pitcher you hit the most home runs off of uh, with uh, eight. Uh, who is number two? Who is number two? I'd yeah, do you know who number two is? No, I I never knew that because it, it was never in – I never went through the whole thing to, to to pick it out. I mean, the two that stood out was just Harvey Haddix and, and Don mm-hmm. Newcomb. So Johnny Antonelli, you hit seven home runs off Johnny Antonelli. Do you remember anything about him? I, I remember in 1958, snowing in Pittsburgh, April 6th, April, see, April 25th, okay? And I was the first major league player to hit the first home run in that year. <laughs> and Antonelli was the pitcher. That's the only thing I remember about that. And, Carl, going to your page uh, here, one of the things that jumps out to me has to do with the parks. And uh, Forbes Field is where you gave up. Of course, Ebbets Field is the one that, that's at the top here. But Forbes Field, you gave up 22 home runs in Forbes Field. Yeah. Listen, I, I almost remember all of them. But, but the biggest one I, was the one that Dale Long hit for his eighth in a row, which, tie, which uh, set a National League record for consecutive games, home runs. And I remember the crowd that night was packed to see if, if he could hit that eighth home run. And I got him out the first time on a curveball away. And the second time up, I threw him a, it was a good pitch, outside, down, and he pulled it into right center. If you remember, Forbes Field had a stands that peaked around into right center. That was for the longest part of the ballpark. And that's where he hit that eighth home run in eight consecutive games. And that's the biggest crowd noise I ever heard. Uh, Bob Skinner was the next hitter, and he'd get in the batter's box, and the crowd was so loud he'd he'd get back out. And he'd finally step in again, and the crowd would not shut down. Do do, do you remember that that year, that week, I'll I'll tell you, Mantle hit one over the Iron Gates, Long hit the one over the Iron Gates, and so did – uh, Lou Brock. Lou Brock. He yeah. wasn't known for his power, but <laughs> no, but, but he there, there was three home three home runs over over the Iron Gate, which is the longest part in right field. Okay, in yeah. one week. Yeah, yeah. Well, Forbes Field had a big uh, a, a big field, but left field was short when they put the bullpen in. Right, right. It was Greenberg. went from three sixty five to three thirty. Yeah, and right. Then 406 in left center. So the scoreboard was 25 feet, and 10 foot on top of that was the clock. So you really had to hit a ball. And, and you know, how many times you hit a ball over 400 feet? Not very often, okay? But uh, it was tough. It's tough for a right-hand hitter. I'm trying to find how many uh, times you struck out. Uh, Frank, because I don't want this to just be one-sided, Carl, <laughs> in terms of well, talking about Well, you the... were beginning to spoil my lunch, but you know, right. go ahead. <laughs> uh, I'll try to find that, uh, but while, while I, I do so, I'm going to bring on a caller 
uh, and uh, it's Mike LeColant, the Brooklyn Trolley blogger. Uh, I think both of you have talked to him before, and he has called into the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, and gentlemen, it's a pleasure and, a, and an honor to be listening to you again, Mr. Erskine, Mr. Thomas. Uh, just a tremendous pleasure. Uh, thank you, Sam, for bringing me on. Yeah, well, hello, Mike. Good to hear you. Hear your voice. Yeah, well, Mike. You know, call, calling us Mister, I tell you, that's respect. <laughs> that was my father. Usually, fans are calling us something else. <laughs> well, you deserve it, sir. Trust me. Uh, my question well, is you. this. My question is this. Both of you are, are terribly familiar with playing in New York City, Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds, obviously. But take us back to the expansion era. Uh, Mr. Erskine, I would like to ask you about your impressions, your first year, the move to Los Angeles as a, as a, a hometown player. And to you, Mr. Thomas, uh, you know, you're having to travel to Los Angeles as a visitor for the first time. Yes, they have the Pacific Coast League. But the American League and the National League are not there prior to expansion. So what was your impressions having to travel to Los Angeles and Mr. Erskine to transition to Los Angeles? Yeah. Well, I'll jump in first, I guess. Um, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, there was two on our team that moved to L.A. in 1958. Uh, the team we played on called the Boys of Summer. Most of us had had our best years already in Brooklyn. So the move to the West Coast was like we got to prove ourselves all over again. And that was tough for the older players. So, I mean, Pee Wee and Duke and uh, Gil Hodges. Campanella was injured that winter before spring training, and he never played again with that auto accident that paralyzed him. But that was one strange feeling is to go to the West Coast the second one was playing in a coliseum because Dodger Stadium hadn't been built for maybe three years after we moved. And so my first, I started the first game in uh, in Los Angeles against the Giants. In a wild game, we made about three or four errors, but we won the ball game six to five. So I got the win, the first win in L.A. But it was strange to pitch in a coliseum. It was very much like the polo grounds. It was deep center field, right center, left center, but the fence in left field was only 250 down the line. And a lot of pop flies would either hit the fence or go over it. So my memory of moving to L.A. was tough, as was for Pee Wee and a couple other guys, but uh, it I never pitched in Dodger Stadium because I retired in 59, but I pitched several games in the Coliseum, and it was down the line was so short. It was unreal. Well, it was tough for Snyder. I know that. He hated it. <laughs> well, Rube Walker. But, and, he was, right. and ironically, because you know, he's from Los Angeles, too. Rube Walker. I, I love I the Coliseum because <laughs> I was a pool hitter, and a lot of my home runs were not cheap there, okay? They went high over that, that fence. In fact, uh, I think Wally Moon uh, hit the most home runs in the Coliseum. I think he had 17, and I think I was the second one with 16. So yeah, somebody asked me uh, when I went to, in 58 when I went out there and, and I tore San Francisco and L.A. 
hitting home runs like it. And I, I led the league at that particular time because it was early in the season. And somebody says to me, one of the writers, and just shows, just goes to show you how things can change just but one word, okay? The writer asked me, he says, if you play here in the Coliseum, what do you think you would do? And my answer was this. If I played in the Coliseum, I would have a chance to break, break Roos' record. And the next day it came out in the paper, if Thomas played 82 games in Coliseum, he would break Roos' record. Now, that was a lie because I never said it. And I said, well, who told you to say that? He said, well, the Pirates did. They figured, well, if, if uh, we said that, that, that we draw more people in the stands. And I said, well, thank you. I said, but that, that doesn't do me any good to say something like that. And I never did say it. Well, I'll tell you, it's, uh, I never was a showboat in baseball. I never wanted to do anything uh, clowny on the, on the mound. And I had one regret that I wish I had pulled off. In 59, I was struggling. It was my last year, and I, was, I had the Cubs beat in the Coliseum, and uh, Chuck Tanner was sent up to pinch hit with a man on in the, the top of the ninth inning. I had a one-run lead, and I was going to get a win. I was going to get a complete game. And Tanner hit a ball off his fist down the left field line, 250, and it went just barely over the fence at 250, and while he was circling the bases, they threw a new ball out to me, and my inclination was to turn around and throw it right over the same spot that he hit that cheap home run. (laughs) To this day, I wish I'd have done it, and I could have thrown it over that fence, (laughs) but but I didn't do it. (laughs) Carl, what do you think about what the runners do today when they hit home runs? Some of them. Well, I don't. Uh, excuse me. Uh, well, there's a lot of emotion going on when a guy hits one and then he he throws his arms up and circles the bases like you know, look what I did. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, back in our times, you know, the, the umpires didn't have the uh, authority like they have today. In other words, I was hit one year 14 times with pitches. Okay, and. Danny Murtaugh, you know, was, who was my manager this, this year in 58 when I could hit that many times, he said to Vernon Law one time, we were in San Francisco, and they, they were throwing at me, okay, and Vernon and Danny says to, to Murtaugh, I mean, Danny Murtaugh said to Vernon Law, he says, Vern, I want you to knock the first hitter down. And Vernon Law says, Danny, I don't do things like that. And then he says, well, he said, if you don't, he said, just come come into my locker and put a $5,000 check down. Well, sure enough, Vernon Long <laughs> threw the first pitch and knocked him right down in his fanny. Back then, pitchers did what they had to do to protect their hitters. And today, they can't do it because once somebody throws at somebody, the umpire says, okay, that's enough. So the other team doesn't get a chance to retaliate. It's altogether a different game today than it is when we played. I like yeah. it better when we played because we played for the love of the game, okay, because we loved it so much. We didn't get paid very much, and uh, but but we loved it. And then today, you know, they, they got that shift on. Nobody bunts, okay, although I saw Baez bunt the ball the other day against the Pirates. 
you know, just beat it out. He, just, he could walk the first base, but the, they're swinging for the fences because the home run is where the money is today, and it's, and it's ridiculous. The game is not played the way it should be played. I think today the only team that really plays the game the way it should be played is the uh, Cardinals. You know, they get them in on second base, they bump the ball over, get them over to third, hit a fly ball, and they score a run. But the other, all the other teams, they're all swinging for the fences. And when you got more strikeouts than you do have you know, I thought when they lowered the strike zone that that was really a, a bad thing for the pitchers. But you know what? The smaller strike zone has made the good pitchers even better. Absolutely. Because, yeah, they focus better and they throw more unhittable pitches because uh, hitters are going to swing. And and I just was amazed that the good pitchers got better with the smaller strike zone. I don't know if you agree with that, Frank, but that I was, do. Well, well, take Gibson, for example, okay? You know, at, the, at the bat dinners in New York, you know, somebody got up and says, uh, oh, Bob, you, you're notorious for knocking pitchers down, hitters down. He said, no. He said, my theory is this. He said, the inside part of the plate belongs to me. He said, the other part belongs to them. He said, if they get hit, it's because they're, they're, they're reaching over. So it's a good example, and, and, and he said the right thing. You know, I respected a pitcher that threw inside. I really did. I think that that's the way the game should be played. And not to knock the guy down, but just to, you know, let him know that, that, that you're going to come inside. Because if you can't hit the pitch inside in the major leagues, you're not going to be there very long. Well, you know, there's one pitcher, one hitter that uh, nobody could get out for a while. It was Willie Mays. And I figured out I didn't I my fastball was not in the high 90s but uh it probably was in the low 90s and I learned to pitch maze inside because now he hit some shots in the upper deck foul but uh but the, he liked to have the ball away from him and he was a, a bad ball hitter maze was yes he but was I finally I finally got him out better pitched him inside right on his right on his hands and if he'd catch up with the pitch, he'd hit it in the upper deck, left uh, left field, uh, foul by about 20 yards. But, uh, yeah, the strike zone, I was amazed when they lowered the strike. Uh, the guys still swing at the high fastball occasionally, but uh, you hardly ever get a call above the waist now. So I thought that would, would really be a disadvantage to pitchers. But the good pitchers got more focused and are tougher with the smaller strike zone. That's why there's so many strikeouts. Well, why do the pitchers today get two strikes on a batter and throw a ball high instead of throwing a ball in the dirt where the the batter's going to swing a lot of those pitches more so than they will on a high pitch overhead? Well, you're right. Uh, High fastballs uh, normally are hard to hit, uh, and it's easier to control up there than low. Now I'll tell you what I see today as a big change in pitching. When I threw an off-speed pitch, I had a good off-speed pitch. Yes, you did. But they were always, the theory in the old days was you never throw an off-speed pitch when you're ahead of the batter. You never throw it on the first pitch because there's no contrast. Well, I didn't use my off-speed pitch very much because uh, you only throw it when you're behind in the count and, uh, so I used to throw it two and zero, three and zero, not not so much three and zero, 
uh, I never saw so many 3-0 and uh, go-ahead-and-hit signs as there are today. Uh, the good hitters get to hit that 3-0 and pitch today, and uh, I never saw that much in my day. And so they got a different game today. <laughs> they have, they have the, uh, all the computerized saying, you know, how many balls hit the right field, how many right center, how many dead center, how many left center, how many yeah. down the line left field. You know, it's ridiculous. And they change, you know, the, the the last three innings of a ball game takes more time than the first six innings because they change so many pitchers and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's ridiculous. Mike, uh, do you have any anything else? I do. One last question, gentlemen. Both of you were teammates with the quiet man, Mr. Gil Hodges. Uh, and I, I asked Mr. Thomas about his opinions with regards to him not being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Mr. Erskine, I never got to ask you that question. So here it is. Uh, maybe both of you can revisit this. Why do you suppose Gil Hodges is not in the Hall of Fame today? Well, he came close several times, and if you you come close, eventually you start falling off again. So Gil was within a vote or two a couple of times, my understanding, and he didn't make it. So after that, players who – and they changed the committee as well. Uh, They used to have writers make those selections. Now former players, as I understand it, is on the committee, but none of them saw Gil play. Uh, Gil, Gil Hodges did something that's not in the record book. He helped Jackie Robinson as much or more than Pee Wee Reese. And Pee Wee gets a lot of credit, which he should, because he did help Jackie a lot. But on the other side of second base, uh, Gil Hodges played next to Jackie. And he saved all the fights on the infield. There could have been a lot of fights in the early going with Jackie at second base because a lot of players slid hard into Jackie. There could have been a lot of fist fights. Gil Hodges saved Jackie a lot of times by pulling guys off the off the pile. And he was so respected that nobody uh, – and he was big and strong as well. So uh, they, I wish he'd give Gil Hodges the credit like he did Pee Wee. He played alongside of Jackie, and he played on the other side. But he helped save Jackie a lot of fights on the infield. And that's not in the stats. I think he might make it this time because it's his last time. He won't have another chance after the vote in December. Uh, And if they look at how many times he came close, and this is his last time, it might be enough weight to get him over. He surely surely should make it. And then that infield, Campanella catching, Hodges at first, Jackie at second, Reese at short. All would all be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, my my impression of that, I I like I loved Gil Hodge because he taught me how to play first base. Okay, when they moved me over to first base, I think it's a disgrace that he's not in. I think personally, and I've said this over and over again, I've said it to, to writers, I said it's a personality conflict. Okay, uh, the writers today have never seen the guy play. Don't know some some of the things that he did, like what you just got done saying and protecting and stuff like that. So that's my theory on the Hall of Fame. Because if you go into the Hall of Fame and you look at the the statues or uh, the plaques that are there, 75% 
of the players are in the big market cities where they have all the writers. And in the small market teams like Pittsburgh, and uh, I'll never get in the Hall of Fame, even though my, my uh, statistics are, are better than about 40% of the Hall of Fame, because we don't have any votes. Maz would have never gone in the Hall of Fame. Williams says Hall of Fame is for hitters, not for fielders. Okay, but the Pirates pushed him, and that's how why he got in. That's my opinion. Yeah, no, I and I disagree with him. I think you know even a, a player like Keith Hernandez, who was also a great hitter uh, during the time, maybe didn't collect those types of Hall of Fame hitter numbers. Uh, well, that look, at, look at, but look he at, got he got eleven uh, Gold Gloves in a row. Oh, look at Jim Cott. You think Jim Cott should be in my? In, I think he does. Okay, just for my, my own opinion in that respect. But uh, people who should be in the Hall of Fame are not in the Hall of Fame. People who are in the Hall of Fame that should not be in the Hall of Fame are in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, that's a popularity contest as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, say la vie, I guess, you know. And hopefully it, it uh, the right the wrong is uh, righted this coming December. Uh, Mike, thank you for joining us. If you want to uh, stay on one way or another, by all means. Um, I wanted to go back to uh, Carl. I I, I wanted to let you know he struck out Frank 10 times. Uh, Unfortunately, however, he did have a 302 batting average off of you. And what's remarkable about uh, um, just, you know, the computers, like we were talking about, uh, even though we had some issues in some fashion, with the way analytics have taken over the game, it's pretty remarkable that I'm able to see exactly which game you got that first hit off Carl, Frank. Um, and, and, and Carl, I, I, again, I'm sorry to be piling it on, but this was 1951 and in August. Uh, and looking at it, it, it's quite a remarkable game. And I'm, I'm curious whether either of you have memories as I uh, unfold some of this for you. Um, the, the game uh, was August 26, 1951. Uh, I believe it was, let's see, was it at Ebbets Field? It was rescheduled from June 8th because of rain, and it was at Ebbets Field. And Don Newcomb started the game. He gave up six runs, but you guys had a lead. Um, let me see something real quick. Uh, where is it? It said he gave up six runs. I'm trying to get Clyde, So so in the... It looks like you had a uh, what was this nine two yeah okay because all those okay so Clyde came in to relieve Newcomb and ended up giving up all of his runs um, because Newcomb had pitched pretty well so far only giving up three runs through that you guys had a nine to three lead but then Clyde uh, uh, you guys basically Frank you guys just started to seeing I single him single to shortstop single to uh, center field single to right field and then Bill Howerton hit a home run. A three-run home run that made it eleven to nine. Um, and Carl, you you came in in relief in this game. Um, and where where uh, I had it here? Excuse me. Uh, but ba- basically, there it is. Uh, uh, Frank, you actually uh, got an RBI on this first hit off Carl uh, to make it twelve to ten. And unfortunately. Carl, uh, <laughs> you guys were not able to to stave a comeback in the ninth inning um, when the uh, the Pirates won twelve to eleven. Uh, so, Carl, I'll start with you. <laughs> what anything like flood back when I, I, I'm describing this? And what, what's so interesting to me is it's one of the games in 1951 in, in those last 
the, the, the final five weeks of the season. Yeah, well, 51 was uh, such a remarkable, uh, unexpected year. Thirteen and a half games uh, in front, I think, in August. Anyway, uh, let me tell you about the Pirates, so I'll interject this. Uh, we beat the Pirates often. Uh, one year, one year we beat, the, we played 22 times, 11 on the road, 11 at home. And one year we beat the Pirates all 22 times. But but the exceptional thing about the Pirates, they scored a lot of runs. They were not an easy team to shut out. Uh, and uh, in the middle of the lineup uh, had about three or four home run hitters with Kiner, the, the, the top guy, used to hit 50 home runs about every year. Uh, so it, it was no fun pitching against the Pirates because it was hard to shut them out. And they always got runs. And... Uh, Frank Thomas, uh, if he could have counted all the upper deckers that he hit foul, uh, he would have brought, brought, broken Ruth's record a long time ago. I, I remember, Frank, you hitting so many balls hard. Yeah, at the last minute. In the upper deck. Right. In left field. <laughs> foul. Well, see, you didn't know me in 51. I, you know, I just came up, so you really didn't know how to pitch to me at that particular time. And, and over the time, then you got to know a little more about, you know, my weaknesses. And uh, and I got to know, I had the impression that I knew exactly when you were going to throw me to change up. I don't know why, why I had that feeling, but I, that, that was my feeling every time I faced you and, and I got the change up and, and, and I hit it all pretty good. Okay. But, uh, why I was able to do that, I have no idea. Well, I'll I tell you guessing. why you could do that. You, I wasn't guessing day, or anything you know, like that. But, well, the, day, the, the year we're talking about, 51, there was an unwritten rule. You never threw a change-up when you were ahead of the, in the count. You always threw it when you were behind the count, uh, 2-0, 3-0, 3-1, 3-2. Uh, so you could almost always figure on me when I was going to throw the change right. because it, it, it was always when you're behind in the count and you're looking to settle on a fastball. Well, so see, I, always studied, I always studied the pitchers in the dugout where a lot of guys would be talking to each other. I would pay attention to the way the pitcher would be pitching, especially the way they pitch kinder because Ralph always said to me, watch the way they pitch me because they were going to pitch the same way to you because you're a home run hitter. And, and I believe that, and I guess that's the reason why I was able to dissect some of the times when I was going to get the change up from you. Yeah. I, would you agree with me? Kiner was a better curveball hitter than most pitchers. Uh, yeah, he was, you know, and, and uh, yet the pitchers keep throwing a curveball to him and, instead of throwing the fastball all the time. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes you wonder – uh, you know, you, you start talking to yourself. If, I, if I'm a pitcher or even a hitter, you know, and I say, you know, why, why am I not swinging at that particular pitch? Because I know it's going to come, okay, sooner or later. And uh, uh, But that's what makes the game so wonderful. And, and I love it so much. I still love it, but I hate some of the things that they're doing with it. Uh, you know, it's all uh, it's supposed to be entertainment. You know, play the game the way it should be played and, and let the uh, – Chicks fall by their side, okay? That's the way I look at it. 
You know, Frank, I'm, it's been fun to talk to you. I've never talked to opponent hitter long enough to get as much information out of them as you have given us on this show. Uh, what a hitter thinks like, and uh, I appreciate talking to you, Frank. Well, I appreciate you too, Carl. I've I've always respect you, and and like I said uh, when I talked to you last time, you know I get a lot of letters from people, and uh, you know they say that that you're one of the the players that answer your mail and stuff like that, which a lot of the players don't do today. Uh, I sit down, like uh, with my charities now, you know, and and last week I got six. Uh, between six and ten letters per day, okay? And so at that particular time, my hands start hurting me from writing, so I had Ramona, my, my girlfriend, to uh, sit down and, and type up, up for me, so all I had to do was just sign my name, and if the uh, uh, fan asked for some questions, I would put it on the bottom of that. But I, I vowed that I would never pass up a kid you know, before when I got into the major leagues, and I said if I had to go someplace, and uh, write to me at the clubhouse, at the pirate office, and I will be get back to you. But I had a theory, I mean, a, pol- a policy that as long as you lined up, I will stay there and sign until each and every one. But when they crowd around you and they throw that pens at you, ink at you, you know, your your co- coats and everything get full of ink. And once I got in the clubhouse, that's what they did. They lined up. Yeah, well, Frank, you, you're thinking the same way I do. I never turn a fan down. I never charge for a, uh, an autograph. And uh, I get a lot of mail during this lockdown, this pandemic time. Uh, I get sometimes as much as 30 pieces of mail in one day. And I got to stay on top of it or I get way behind and I have arthritic hands, so it, it takes me a little while. But I never refuse to sign a, an autograph. Uh, sometimes somebody will take advantage of you. They want to send eight cards or ten cards of the same card. And uh, so he can't be collecting. He's got to be selling them. Yeah, so sometimes right. they take advantage of you. But Well, I charge now because of my charities. Okay, I charge $5 for any flat article, and all the money goes to my two charities. Well, I do the similar thing for Special Olympics. I don't actually set a charge, but I encourage people not to pay me, but to make a donation to Special Olympics. Well, my my charities get a check from me every month, okay, as long as I can sell the pictures. And the one picture I sell a lot of is the one where I made baseball history that I don't think is ever going to be broken. And that's when I hit the fourth home run in succession on June 8, 1961, uh, in Cincinnati. Uh, you know, I don't think that record's ever going to be broken. Somebody's got to hit five home runs to beat my record. <laughs> well, Aaron Judge is trying to do that right now, it seems. He's got he's doing it at least. Yeah, but, uh, but, he's got a consecutive they, they won't do it today. In other words, the way... The way they they pitch hitters today, you know, they they're trying to do that, but you're not going to have five five players in in one game to do it. I mean, that's it's my my prediction. Um, Mike, do you have anything else? I would just like to say, 
gentlemen, thank you for your recollections and anecdotes. They're priceless. Uh, thank you for keeping us fans educated uh, to what is essentially a, a golden era of baseball. Uh, thank you for sharing your time. Uh, both of you, such affable and avail, uh, such affable men, and, and your availability, uh, I find incredible. So again, thank you as a baseball fan and uh, a New Yorker. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Appreciated. And and uh, we're going to. Uh, start wrapping the show up. It, it's been remarkable having both of you on. Thank you again to to uh, uh, basically second what Mike just said. He said it so eloquently. What, what's the point of me uh, mashing on it? So first, um, I, I'll go to you, Carl, to, to wrap up uh, with your final word. And if there's anything else that you wanted to say to Frank before we go. Well, first of all, at my time in history, uh, to be remembered uh, as a major leaguer, I think that uh, as a kid, that would be such a fantasy. And I got to enjoy playing 12 seasons. Uh, I got to play with guys that were real class people. Uh, Frank's one of them. And um, it's just a marvelous thing for me at this time. I'll be 94 in December to have that much recall of the era that I played in. I'm grateful for all of that. And we are, too. Thank you so much. Frank, anything else you would like to say to Carl before we go? Well, you know, I get a lot of letters asking me, you know, what's what's your greatest thing as far as baseball is concerned? And I always say this. Uh, because of my greatest thrill is putting on a major league uniform and staying as long as I did in the major leagues, and playing in the best era in baseball, uh, and I don't think it's it, – I personally think it's going down in, in history as the greatest era in, in, in history. Uh, I mean, if you didn't hit 250 in the major leagues when I played and when Paul pitched, you weren't in the major leagues very long. Today they're hitting 190, and they're making millions of dollars. So it's a different different atmosphere and a different way to play ball today. And, you know, to be able to say – you know, I played against, you know, I batted against Carl Erskine, who is, to me, one of the classiest guys in in the game of baseball. I mean, he's always been that way. I mean, every time I went to the bat dinner, I always made it a point to say hello to him, sit down and talk with him. And he was very, very polite and stuff like that. So I really appreciate you, Carl. I mean, you know, you're, you were a great pitcher. And, and God bless you. And happy birthday on December. Oh, boy. Boy, coming from a hitter like you, that's a high compliment, Frank. Well, <laughs> Thank uh, you so I, much. I, I feel that way. I mean, you know, I, I, I tell the truth. You know, I don't pull any punches, okay? I, I tell what, what I personally feel within my heart. And, and I feel that you, you're you one of the, the, the great pitchers and, and the, and the uh, respected pitcher in the National League. Yeah, Frank, well... I'll tell you what, uh, you sound like my mother. She would have said everything just like you did. <laughs> He's a great guy. Why not? Because it's the truth. Yeah, thanks, Frank. Well, you're, you're it's quite a wonderful welcome, thing to talk to guys that played in that era because uh, we went from light, uh, day daytime to night. Baseball went from trains to planes, went from radio to TV, went from uh, all white to integrated. Went from East Coast to the West Coast. That all happened between 
1947 and 57. So that's truly the era, golden era of baseball. Uh, nobody's going to take that away from us. Nobody will. And, guys, this has been magical. I thank you both so very much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to a Bedford and Sullivan podcast. We'll be back on Wednesday with the Brooklyn Borough historian, Ron Schweiger. Take care.